It's great to see you all here this morning. I know this is one of those days when you could easily have excused yourself and said, you know, it's cold outside, it's snowy, it's maybe slick in spots. Good day to pack it in. I'm glad you didn't. And your presence here, your smiles, your worship, your singing, great encouragement. So thank you for not letting an excuse keep you from being where we ought to be. You know, and there's something about it. When you do what God wants you to do, you always feel better in the long run. If you're a guest with us today, we're delighted that you're with us. Join us again uh, in better weather, all right? And uh, if you're worshiping with us on SOCC.TV, we're, we're glad you've tuned in as well. And uh, we hope and pray that what we do today will be an encouragement to you. We're in this series on the uh, life of Elijah, just like us. And this morning, we're going to take a look at this theme of discover his goodness. So let me ask a question as we begin. Who provides for you? Who provides for you? I think most of us would say, well, it kind of depends on what provision you're talking about. And, and honestly, it does. If we're talking about emotional needs, we'd probably say, well, we depend on our spouse or a close friend or even maybe a counselor. Uh, if it's an intellectual stimulation that we need, we might say, well, I've got an apprenticeship or I'm attending Ivy Tech or IU. I'm, I'm getting some more education. If the need is financial, you probably look to the company where you're employed. I mean, after all, that's where your paycheck originates. And that's why we panic when we get laid off or the company goes out of business or there's some kind of a transition or change in our career. You see, that financial provision is pretty critical to everything that we do. <laughs> Years ago, when our daughters were real little, we were working on manners at the dinner table and Emily didn't like it one little bit. And in her best attempt to offer wisdom to her older sister, little Rebecca said this, now Emily, that's why God gave us parents to teach us and to help us and for money. <laughs> she had it summed up pretty good, didn't she? You see, we we depend on somebody to provide us financial help and assistance through life. That's what it's all about so we can get through. If the need is social, you might look to a club or a civic organization to build your social network. But I hope, I hope your first choice would be a life group here. A life group not only will help you spiritually, but it will also help you socially. It's a great place to build new friendships. As a matter of fact, next week we begin a new life group <laughs> Well, it's, it's sorting things out. It gives you the opportunity to figure out if you're going to be in a life group or want to be in one. It's going to meet at 11 o'clock for the next three Sundays. And it'll be a great opportunity if you're not plugged in for you to find a way to get plugged in. Because you see, that's why the church is important because it's best suited to provide for our spiritual needs. And sometimes the spiritual needs get overlooked. So I'll go back to my question. Who provides for you? I think one of the downfalls of a prosperous culture is the fact that we, well, we tend to rely upon our own circles of influence. Spouse, parents, friends, boss, counselor, life group, higher education. We depend on our own personal circle of influence for our needs. And, and that's all well and good to a point. But the scriptures teach us repeatedly to depend upon God to provide what we need. His goodness and his blessings are essential. You see, to depend on ourselves and our own human connections is the equivalent of panning for gold in our own bathtubs. You're probably not going to get very far. We miss out on the true blessings. And if we didn't have a stocked pantry, 
or a stocked refrigerator. It would be easier to pray, God, give us today our daily bread. But because of the fact that most of us could go on for probably a week or more, it's, it's hard to pray that prayer because it really doesn't come from the heart. That's not to suggest we'd be better off in a state of poverty. I, I believe what we enjoy is God's blessing. But we can get so comfortable with the blessings that we forget who has provided such goodness. Eight times in the Old Testament, God introduces himself as El Shaddai. Most often translated, God Almighty. However, that's not the only way to translate that name. It also carries the idea of being the all-sufficient God or the all-bountiful one. It is the picture of God who sustains us in all circumstances by pouring out his blessings time and again on those whom he loves. The all-sufficient God will hold you during times of failure, will sustain you when earthly relationships dissolve, will protect you through the unknown moments of your tomorrows, will soothe your despair in times of trouble, will comfort your sorrows in times of loss. He is El Shaddai, the God who pours out his goodness. It is his nature to bless God does not begrudgingly give out meager gifts because he feels obligated to do something good. No, he is good because that's who he is. It is his nature. God can't help being good. Elijah discovered that goodness of God throughout his life and ministry. It's what sustained him in his life and ministry, and it's what kept him going through the good times and the bad times. And you say, well, my life has been anything but good lately. It's a mess. And the scriptures never promise that as God's people, we'll be exempt from hard times, folks. And, and, and that's really what we see in the story of Elijah. But remember this as well. God's provision is like an umbrella in the rain. If you stay under the umbrella, you'll be sheltered from rain. When you step out from under the umbrella of his care, you're going to get wet. For the life of me, I don't understand how some people who don't follow the Lord, who don't pay any attention to the Lord, who don't love him, who don't serve him, who don't walk with him, who don't read his word, when bad things happen in their lives, they want to blame God for it all. I don't get that. It, you know, we don't, we're not under his umbrella. We don't want to be under his umbrella. But boy, God, you better not let anything bad happen to me. What, what, is, what is wrong with our logic when we expect God to do what he has to do for us when we don't owe him one bit of love or worship? The power in this passage is a reminder that even in the tough times, whether we're on the mountaintop or whether we're in the valley, God is always good. So we'll pick up the story of Elijah where we left off last Sunday. Now, remember, with a handful of words, Elijah told the king that there'd be no rain for the next few years until he said so. Now, the power wasn't in Elijah. The power was in the promise of God, and the power was from God. And Elijah gives this 10-second sermon, and he departs the palace as quickly as he had entered the palace. And then beginning in verse 2 is where we find what happens next. So 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 2. Verse 1 was the sermon. Yeah, I know, I know. I remember last week. Verse 2 is where the story picks up. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan. 
You'll drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine east of Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, please notice that God did not remove Elijah from the conditions of the drought. God didn't say, there's going to be drought on this land for three and a half years. But Elijah, I'm going to send you over here to this country. Everything is is coming up roses over there. No, Elijah stayed in the same land. The same dry, cloudless sky that formed an arid canopy over the king's palace also hovered over Elijah's small place in the Kirith Ravine. Now, we're going to learn later in the story that amidst all the wicked, idolatrous activity that was going on in Israel, there were 7,000 people that remained true to God. 7,000 people that would not worship Baal, that would not sacrifice their relationship with God. 7,000 people. Guess what? They also endured the drought. Do you you understand the the situation here? When, When God brought punishment on the nation, he didn't remove his people from the consequences. He sustained them through the consequences, but he didn't remove them from the consequences. Have you ever uttered anything like this in your life? And if not uttered it, have you ever thought anything like this? If God really loved me, why would he allow me to go through such difficult times? What have I done to deserve this? Ever felt that way? If so, let me remind you what Jesus told his listeners in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 45, it says, He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You get his point? What happens in this world happens to everybody. Just because we're followers of God does not mean we have been somehow removed and sheltered from all the tough stuff that's going on. Folks, Christianity is not a get-out-of-jail-free card like you get in a Monopoly game. It's not a guarantee that we will escape the natural problems of life like tornadoes or cancer. Nor is it a guarantee against the consequences of evil decisions made by others, terrorist attacks or criminal behavior. God will not remove us from discouraging experiences and troubling situations. Life in this world can be tough. God doesn't say, I'm going to take you out so it's easy. And here's the reason. Sometimes, sometimes it is that difficult experience that God uses to shape, mold, and change us. Author John Yates writes about the only survivor of a shipwreck washed up on a small uninhabited island. Cried out to God to save him, to send, send somebody to rescue him. Scanned the horizon every day until he'd just given up, figured this was going to be his lot in life. He, he kind of cobbled together a little place to, to, to stay. He'd gathered up all the stuff that washed up from the shipwreck that was usable, kept it in this little lean-to shelter, and that was his home. He assumed it would be that way for the rest of his life. One day he was out trying to get something to eat and comes back to find the shack on fire, smoke billowing, and in his anger with God, he lashed out for not intervening to save what he had. What little he had on that deserted island. God, how could you let this happen to me? The next morning, a ship appeared on the horizon, and a rescue boat makes its way from the ship to the shore. And he said, why did you come? How, how, How did you know I was here? And the crew of that little rescue ship said, oh, that was easy. We saw your signal from the, from the sea earlier yesterday. The smoke 
that was a great idea. You see, sometimes we look at the tough things that happen in our lives. We look at the damage that we've gone through. We look at the hurt and the pain and we think, God, how could you let me go through something like that and forget that it may be the very thing that changes our lives forever. Though it may not seem like it at the time, God's blessings often come disguised as difficulties, disappointments, and trouble. So keep trusting him. Keep following him because God is always good. And keep this in mind. God sometimes provides in the most unique ways. God provides through extraordinary methods. Now, there are dozens of ravines in that area called Kareth, which, of course, would have made it difficult for Ahab's soldiers to find Elijah. You see, once Elijah pronounced that curse upon the land, and once the drought began to settle in, Ahab sent his soldiers searching out the prophet of God to bring him back to make him change what was going on, and Ahab was so angry. But, you know, in the crags and the rocks and the canyons and the caves, it would have been very hard to find one man in that particular area. And it says that God led Elijah to a place by a brook and then fed him twice daily by ravens. Bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening delivered by ravens. Mm. If you've ever seen Alfred Hitchcock's movie, The Birds, this is not a delightful sight, all right? This is by no means a vacation resort for Elijah. The picture of Elijah being fed by ravens in the Bible is, well, it's not really so pleasant. I, this was a picture of, of that happening in a, in a picture Bible book that I had when I was a kid growing up. It's kind of a pleasant scene, isn't it? Elijah looks whole and healthy and he's reaching up and that, and that raven is so tenderly, gently laying that piece of bread into his hand. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a pleasant picture, almost, almost heartwarming picture. I don't think it happened that way. I think they just flew over and dropped the food, you know? And, and, and um, why did God pick a raven in, in the first place? I mean, the Old Testament book of Leviticus commanded Israelites not to eat the raven because it is an unclean and detestable bird. Now, if, if I had been Elijah, I would have said, Lord, how about a snow white dove? How about a gaggle of geese? How about a cheerful canary? How about a majestic eagle? Anything but a, a raven, God. A raven, a dirty scavenger bird. I mean, this was not room services to the Samaritan Hilton. I understand that. But ravens? Gary Richmond, author of a book called A View from the Zoo, explains, he said, ravens are scavengers. Therefore, they and anything they touch is unclean. They'll eat just about anything, dead and decaying meat, rodents, insects, and rotten garbage. They are without discrimination and are absolutely disgusting. Ravens. But they're very smart, incredibly smart, as a matter of fact. We were uh, out at Yellowstone, Elsie and I, a few years back on vacation, and one of the park rangers was saying that they've studied the ravens in, in Yellowstone, and they have somehow made a pact with the wolves. This is true. He said what they've, what they've done is that they've created this ability to communicate with wolves. And so the ravens will fly searching for a pack of anything that will provide food for the, for the wolves. They will take the wolves to where the, the food supply is. The wolves will, of course, attack and eat the carcass. And when the wolves are done, the ravens then get to pick the rest of the carcass clean. It's pretty amazing. Pretty smart, pretty intelligent. Maybe it was because of the intelligence of the birds that God chose ravens. 
And you say, well, where did they get the food to begin with? Well, I don't think it was from Chariot Kill out on the byway there. I'll tell you what I think. This is pure speculation. But where's the last place to go without food in a drought? The palace. I mean, the king's going to be the last one not to eat in any kind of a drought situation. So I believe these ravens were, were at the king's palace. Maybe picking up the food left from those 450 prophets of Baal that Jezebel paid out of her own pocket. Or maybe it came actually from the, own, the king's own palace as well. Uh, here's, what, here's the picture that I have. Have you ever been to in a, a theme park, one of those outdoor restaurants, you know, those quick places where people sit down on the umbrella tables? Have you ever noticed how many black birds sit around the edges of those restaurants? Folks, I've watched. I've seen those kind of blackbirds when somebody gets up and leaves the table. They'll fly off with a whole hamburger bun lid in their, in their mouth. Or two or three uh, french fries in their beak. They'll, they'll fly off with this. And I'm thinking, man, they can. this is what I think is happening here. I think that um, these ravens are scavenging from the table of the king to provide for Elijah. And then that, wouldn't that just be like God? Uh, you know, here, here Ahab is hunting for Elijah and God's saying, Elijah is going to be provided from your table, Ahab. Why ravens? Two reasons, I believe. First, God wanted to prove to Elijah that he could use anything, that nothing is too common to be a tool in God's hands. Second of all, it gives credibility to the story. If this story were made up, you wouldn't use a raven. You'd have picked anything else but a raven. It gives credibility to the fact this is the way the story happened. It has credibility. Don't forget, if God can use a filthy bird like a raven, just imagine what he can do with us. So, not just extraordinary methods, but God sometimes works through extraordinary places. When the brook dried up, notice where God sent Elijah. In verse 7 of, of that chapter, it said, Sometimes late, Sometime later, the brook dried up because there would, had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Now, folks, uh, Zarephath is not a part of, of Israel. This, this is foreign territory in the area of Sidon. This is not God's people. The Jews are not living in that part of the world. The, the, this would have been a pagan widow that was living there where, where God was sending Elijah. He was way out of his comfort zone. The widow was not a believer. She was a Phoenician. Get this, from the country of Sidon, which was the homeland of Jezebel. Where would be the last place Ahab's soldiers would look for a prophet of Israel? In the home territory of wicked Jezebel. Then God told him, I'll take care of you there in the most unlikely place. When God needs to provide for your life, he is not limited to certain places, people, or methods. I have commanded a widow, God said. She didn't know about it yet. You see, God can use anything or anyone in his creation to accomplish his will. So don't you be caught saying, I don't have anything to offer God. I don't have anything to offer the kingdom. I don't have anything I can do in the church. That's not true. If God can use ravens, if God can use people that don't believe in him, God can use you. You have something to give back to God with your talents and your abilities to put forth into his kingdom. And the story gets better. God uses extraordinary moments too. Verse 10. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called out and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? 
And as she was going to get it, he called, and bring me a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she said, I don't have any bread. I don't want to have a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as I have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. Of all the nerve, this guy needs a lesson in etiquette. You know, I don't have anything. I'm gonna, we're going to eat our last meal and we're going to die. Okay, but first make me a piece of bread. <laughs> you know, does this strike anybody else as being a little bit harsh or cold? Well, Elijah is making a point, and I suspect, you know, I'm really, I don't know why the woman did it, but she did. Maybe, maybe it was this, even in dying, I can be gracious. What have I got to lose? I got nothing left anyway. Might as well share what little we have. I mean, here was a woman running on empty. She was a widow, a single parent, and the sole responsible party for her son and herself. The death of her husband would have resulted in the loss of companionship, financial support, adult conversation, and someone to love and by whom to be loved. She was emotionally empty. She was a pagan. The only God she knew was a piece of iron and stone that had given her absolutely nothing. Besides, Baal. The principal God, the, the, the God that got the Israelites in such trouble for, for worshiping this idol was supposed to be the God of fertility, but he couldn't even make it rain on the land to give forth crops. She was spiritually empty. He'd done nothing for her. She was without resources. She was, she was gathering a few sticks for a last fire, for a last meal. I, I can imagine that she had used up everything possible. She had not a penny left in the, in the bank. She had nothing left in the pantry. She had run out of energy. The stress of that life and death situation must have been overwhelming to her. She was about to watch her son die a slow death of starvation. It's one thing to die yourself as a parent. It'd be something else to have to watch your child go through that. She'd poured the last drop out of every jar. They'd finished the last of leftovers. The rainy day fund was bone dry. Every stone had been turned. Every corner surveyed. Every cookie jar had been emptied. There was nothing left. She was utterly, completely empty. Does that sound familiar to any of you? I, I know some of you this morning are running emotionally empty. Maybe you are a recent widow or widower. Maybe you've buried your only surviving parent recently. Maybe the news from your doctor is not good. Maybe your child has walked away from the family and abandoned you. You fill in the blanks. I don't know what it is for you, but I know that when those kinds of things happen, you're on empty. Your emotions are shot. Some of you are stressed out. It's, it's whatever's happening at school or work family life, community responsibilities, or you've bitten off more than you can chew. You, you name it, you're just feeling overwhelmed. You're constantly putting out fires at work or in your household. You struggle with material as well as physical resources. You don't have the energy to keep going. You've had it up to here with life, and you, well, you're empty at every level. 
Or maybe you're spiritually empty this morning. You got questions about God that don't seem to bring answers. Your soul is dried up inside of you like parched ground. Your spirit longs to be refreshed, but you can't seem to find your way out of the desert. Are you empty? And if you're feeling empty today, don't miss the next part of the story. Notice what happens in verse 14. Elijah's still speaking. He said, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So, so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family for the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Do not miss this important principle. Do what God commands first. Empty the jar, empty the jug, and let him fill them over and over again. In each case, when Elijah obeyed first, when the woman obeyed first, God turned and blessed the situation. And here's the thing, neither one of them had much to give, but it isn't how much we have to give, it's our willingness to give it that matters. Look at the littles of the Bible Elijah offered a little sermon, 10 seconds, remember? But it changed history. The woman had just a little dab of flour left and just a little spot of oil left, but she gave it, and it changed the whole circumstance of her life and that of Elijah. All Moses had was a staff. He stuttered, he'd had all kinds of problems, he'd fled away. All he had was a staff, a little stick. But the Bible says that stiff. That stick, that staff became the staff of God. And when Moses held it out over the Red Sea, the waters parted. Now the power wasn't in the staff, but it represented the power of God to the people. A little boy had a, a, a lunch snack, five small cracker-sized loaves, two small sardine-sized fish, but he gave it all to Jesus. And Jesus used a little snack to feed 5,000. How many littles can you find in the scripture? Remember, it's not how much we have to give back to God, but our willingness to give it that makes a difference. You got a small talent, that's all right. God will take your small talent and multiply it over and over. You, you don't think you have something with which to serve? You do, don't give up. God didn't put more in the jar and in the jug until it was first emptied. Whatever you pour out, he'll refill over and over and over again. The pagan widow was beginning to learn about the God of the universe. Yes, there was still a drought and a famine in the land. Yes, the economy of the area had tanked, but it was the flour and the oil that remained constant in her life that gave her hope and, a, and an insight into the heart of God. And her only son was, was living uh, until the next part of the story. He died. Without much warning. Without much warning, he just got sick and he died. And here at the, at the growing of her faith comes the most devastating moment of her life. And there with her lifeless son in her arms, she looks at the prophet Elijah and she cries out, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? She was saying, Elijah, your God's no different than this Baal God who's always taking something away from me. Elijah carried her son to an upper room, 
stretched out himself over the boy three times, hand to hand, foot to foot, face to face. And after the third time, the boy was alive again. Ah, there's one of those three stories again. God restored the boy's life. It is the first resurrection recorded in the Old Testament. It is the picture of greatest hope. Notice the contrast. In verse 12, the widow says, the Lord, your God. But in verse 24, it reads like this. She said, then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. I love this passage of hope because it is a snapshot of the heart of God. Did you see the picture, folks? An only son, a death, three, and resurrection. Elijah could not have known that in those moments he was painting a picture that would foretell the coming of the greatest moment of all spiritual history when God's only son died on the cross for our sin and that three days later would be restored to life. I want, to, I want to leave you with this truth. God doesn't ever let us down. Our own expectations of God may, but God doesn't let us down. Put him first. Be obedient to him. And his blessings of goodness will see you through every hardship. What we sing on the mountain, we'll sing in the valley that God is always good. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.